We read Matthew 18 in connection with that last limiting phrase of the fifth petition, as we forgive our debtors. We hear God's inspired, infallible word. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and sat him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as, a little, as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone be hanged around his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, is it not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish? Moreover, if thy brethren shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. 
And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. Before as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. We hear the inspired word of God. We read it that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We read it in connection with Lord's Day 51. Or Lord's Day 51. Question and answer 126. Which is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood not to impute to us, poor sinners, our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us, even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we look at that last part of the fifth petition. And we're justified in devoting an entire sermon to that specific point. Jesus called attention to that phrase, as we forgive our debtors, in his treatment of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. It's striking that Jesus in Matthew 6 teaches the apostles the Lord's Prayer, and when he concludes Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, he isolates, he points out, one particular aspect of that entire prayer. And what is it that he points out? Strikingly, it's this phrase. So that after teaching them the entire prayer, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We read this in verse 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Of everything in the prayer that Jesus could have highlighted, this is what he chose to highlight. This last part of the fifth petition. Jesus deemed it so important that he called special attention to it. You need forgiveness. 
You need forgiveness more than anything else in your life. And here's the point that he's making and the point that we have to hear this morning. Don't expect that you'll get or experience that forgiveness if you're not walking in kindness and love toward your neighbor. If you harden your heart and you refuse to forgive those around you, you're not going to know the joy of forgiveness. And so each of us this morning faces concretely this question, have I forgiven my brother? Have I forgiven my sister? How am I living? Am I living in a spirit of forgiveness? Or is there someone in my family, in my church, someone that God has put on my pathway that I'm holding grudges against, that I've not forgiven? This morning, beloved, we search our hearts and we pray that God reveal those sin, if there be such sin in our life. And where there are such sins of walking in bitterness and hatred and anger, holding grudges, then we pray that God would work in us that spirit of readiness to forgive. We look at this phrase under the theme, forgiving our debtors, noting the meaning, the possibility, and the necessity. This petition is often misunderstood, and we can understand that, how it could be misunderstood. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So some would say, well, that as we forgive means that we're setting ourselves up as the example for God. In other words, we're saying, God, forgive us, even as I've so diligently worked in my life to forgive those who are around me. That would be tragic, wouldn't it? And we realize that. Do I really want to establish my example as the standard of God's work of grace in my life? There are times when we might forgive But we make pretty clear because of the hardness of the difficulty of the situation that I forgive you, but our relationship is never going to be the same. We might have been best friends before, and now we're not going to have much to each other anymore. Imagine if God did that to us. I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to have a relationship with you anymore. How tragic that would be. Now we realize because of sin, that is something that's understandable in the experiences that we have here on this side of the grave. And Jesus even acknowledged that in terms of allowing for divorce in situations of fornication, recognizing that there may be a situation there where a marriage is so troubled that because of the breakdown of trust, that relationship can never be the same again. But nevertheless, we go forward as those who are assured of forgiveness. But imagine if God would treat us that way, there would be no joy of forgiveness. Our relationship with God would not be as the scriptures pointed out to be. So we reject that idea that somehow our example is that which we're setting forth. Secondly, this is not a conditional phrase. Some would understand it that way. This means that God is setting conditions. In other words, God is saying, I'll forgive you, but here's your condition. You've got to be forgiving other people. And if you're not forgiving other people then I'm not going to forgive you. There are no conditions. We know with regard to God's wondrous declaration of forgiveness. God's declaration of forgiveness is based on the cross in connection with eternal election. And that election is unconditional. That election has nothing to do with us or any of our actions. It's a wonder of God's grace. God forgives us unconditionally. And God's forgiveness of us is a wonder of grace alone. 
And so we understand God is not setting here a condition for us. And again, if that were the case, we would all go to hell. There's no possibility that we could meet this criteria as a ground or basis then of our forgiveness. Nor is it this, that forgiving others is the basis then on which we plead. So it's not as though God is setting it forth as an example. It's not a condition and it's for sure not the basis. The idea there would be then, God forgive me on the basis of the fact that I am so good at forgiving those in my life. All boasting is excluded. There is no boasting in our lives with regard to the fact that I have forgiven so well and therefore I've made myself deserving. That would be very similar again to the idea of a conditional perspective. And it would come down to this. Really, this is the point that God makes to us. Would God be less gracious than the work he's pleased to do through us? In other words, God forgives you. And having forgiven you, God now works in you the grace by which you then show that mercy, that kindness to those around you. That's the point ultimately in a positive way then. So that the fifth petition then is setting forth the inevitable fruit of the work of God's grace in us. Jehovah God in his mercy forgives us and we experience the wonder of that forgiveness. And now as those who are forgiven, The fruit of it that will be evident in our lives is that we live in this spirit of humility, meekness, and graciousness. We forgive others who've sinned against us. These two parts are connected then with an as. The first part answers how restoration of communion can be restored between us and God. Because of our debt, because of our sin, communion with God is disrupted. Forgive us our debts so that we can have that communion restored. The second part of it has to do with our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only is our relationship with God at stake, our relationship with one another also is affected. And so these two parts then, closely related, are connected with an as. What does that point out? There's a similarity between the manner in which God forgives us and the manner in which we forgive others. And that similarity has at least three points. First of all, those who are forgiven are those who are sorrowful for their sin. And they desire that forgiveness. Secondly, those who are forgiven are not those who are coming necessarily to us. We didn't first come to God. God came to us. And so there's that point. As God came to me, and sought forgiveness and worked that wonder in my heart, so also I go to the brother, I go to the sister, as Matthew 18 points out. And then finally, that forgiveness is such that it's abundant. Just as God forgives us again and again and again, so we are called, as Jesus points out here figuratively, to forgive one another 70 times 7. That is, again and again and again and again. Now this petition is rooted then, as we noted last time, in the wonder of God's love for us and the love for the neighbor. God sets before us an obligation of love. God says, love me. And that love is required in everything that we do. And we noted that as we walk in love toward God, we incur debts. We do not love God. 
as we ought. God says, love me, love the neighbor. We do not love the neighbor as we ought. And we saw the debt that we incur then over against God. Every single day we're incurring debts as we're not loving God as we ought. Now the point of this petition and this aspect of it is our neighbor. Every single day we're incurring debts also to our neighbor. We're not loving our neighbor as we ought. And as a result then, we owe them. We're not walking faithfully toward our spouse, toward our family members, our parents, our siblings, toward the fellow members of the church. And as a result then, we incur debt. Now we know that there's an application here to all men. It's very broad. But through the Lord's Prayer, we're praying, let us. And we're praying we. And we're doing so in the context of the communion of saints. In the context of the body of Jesus Christ. We're called to, love and walk, to walk in love, we know, even toward our persecutors, toward our enemies. There's no limitation with regard to God's command to us. But the main concern here is our fellow saints. As we live together... In the family, we are called to walk in love. And so what we have here, beloved, is this. The father of the family, Jehovah God, now comes to his children and he commands you and me, love one another. And show that love one for another by forgiving each other. Look at what I've done for you. Look at the marvelous wonder of the grace that I've demonstrated. I've forgiven you all your debts. And now you need to do that one toward another. And if you don't do that, one of two things are going to be evident. Either you don't know the wonder of regeneration and you've never been converted, or the devil has got a hold of you. And though you're a child of God, though you're regenerated, you're allowing selfishness and you're allowing the devil to hinder your enjoyment of the blessedness of that forgiveness. The father of the family now coming to us and acknowledging this. In our relationships on earth, we have a debt that we owe to each other. We're called to walk in love toward one another. We're called to forgive those who sin against us. We have a duty as members of the body of Jesus Christ to show love toward one another. At issue this morning that is not this question, what do others owe me? It's what do I owe them? It's true that others also owe you that love. They've not shown that love as they ought. And therefore, they've incurred debts over against you. And your calling then, as we read this morning, is to go to them. Express to them your concern. Make known the struggles that you're experiencing with regard to their actions. Don't talk bad about them. Don't badmouth them to those around you. Don't hold grudges, but you go to them. But regardless of what others have done to you, your obligation before God is to walk in love toward those around you. Love our enemies. Love those that despitefully hate us and persecute us. We're, showed, we're called to be walking in that spirit of love toward all those. When we're not walking in that love, when we're not giving that love to our spouse or to our children or to our parents, to our siblings, to fellow members of the congregation, we then become indebted one to another. I'm indebted to you for not walking in the love toward you that I ought. You're in debt to me by not walking in that love as you should. Now this happens in all of our relationships. This happens at school with you classmates. 
You're not walking in love toward your fellow saints. You're not doing kind things for them. You're not helping them. You're not showing goodness toward them as you ought. You're not showing love toward your teachers like you should. This happens in your family. You're not showing kindness toward your siblings. You're not helping your mother like you should be. You're not respecting your father like you ought. You're not showing to them the love that you owe them. And again, it doesn't matter what they're doing to you. It doesn't matter how they're treating you. Your calling is to walk in love toward those whom God puts on your pathway. But what happens? We're so selfish. We're so conceited that we only care about ourselves. We only care about what others are doing to us. The question rather is, what are you doing for your mother? How are you showing your father that love? How are you walking in that love toward your classmates? How are you interacting with members of the congregation? What, what happens? Tragically, what happens often is this. Rather than seeking the good of our fellow saints, seeking the good of those, we're talking bad about them. We're gossiping. We're slandering. Is that love? Is that seeking their salvation? And by doing so, then we incur debt. We're wrapped up in self-pity. We're all concerned about what others owe to us. Jesus comes and says, no, you owe a debt to them. And you need to be concerned about that. Don't isolate yourselves. Don't just look at yourself. Often we do that, don't we? We won't, don't want to get hurt more. We have expectations of others and how they should be treating us. And they're not meeting those expectations. And so pretty soon we don't want anything to do with relationships. We don't reach out to others. We're not showing kindness toward those around us. And what happens? We become guilty of the sin of omission. We're not loving our neighbor as God calls us to do. Forgive those debts. As Christ has forgiven you, so now you need to forgive those who are indebted to you. Jesus took away all the guilt and the shame of sin. He bore it on Calvary. And he gives us an unspeakable joy. He gives to us a blessed hope. Christ humbles us to the dust as he reminds us what great wonders he performed for us. What did Jesus do for you? While you were yet sinners, he died for you. That's the love with which he loved you. You weren't doing anything kind to him. You didn't deserve it. And yet, he loved you. And then while we constantly trample under our feet, his glory, we don't love him as we ought. He constantly is forgiving us. And he's preserving us. And he's keeping us. And he's caring for us. He reminds us that his love for us is all of grace. It's unconditional. It's undeserving. And he commands us then, you need to forgive the debt of your neighbor in spite of what they do to you. In spite of how serious those sins are against you. Forgive them. Do good to them and pay that debt before God. Now you say, yeah, but what about the fact that They've sinned against me and they're not sorry. What if they don't come to me? They're not coming to me. They're not confessing their sin to me. I don't need to forgive them then, do I? The catechism answers that question for us, as does Matthew 18. Even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. The desire of our heart is a firm resolution to forgive. If our desire is any different, we're walking in sin. Always our desire is to forgive. We may not wait till they come to us. 
That's the whole point of Matthew 18 here. And imagine if Jesus did that. If Jesus said, well, I'll forgive them, but they better come to me first. Adam and Eve would still be in the garden, walking in sin. And we and the whole human race would be perished in Adam. God came to Adam and Eve in the garden. God looked them up. God showed mercy to them. Adam and Eve would never come to God. We would never come to God of ourselves. God comes to us. He goes to the offending party. He looks us up in grace. And he gives us the blessed assurance of the wonder of his work. He regenerates us. He turns us. And he works repentance and sorrow in our hearts. We go to the one who sinned against us. And we make known to them the sin that they've committed. Now we're good at making all kinds of excuses why this doesn't need to apply to me or doesn't need to apply to my situation. In the past, I've had many individuals that would come to me as a pastor and the elders have had this as well and would talk about all the wrongs that other people have done to them and all the struggles that they're enduring and I would say, have you gone to the brother? Have you gone to talk to your sister about this? They're like, no, 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 no. I don't want to make such a big deal about it. Or they would have all kinds of excuses. Some maybe even legitimate. I'm really shy. Or I know myself to be a sinner. I'm not perfect either and I don't want to point out someone else's sin. Or I don't think the person's going to receive me well and therefore I don't know how to do it because it could cause a lot of grief. Talking to someone else about it, that's making a big deal about it. That's violating God's will. Instead of going to the person, I'm going to talk to others about it, even my pastor, the elders. That's not what Christ here instructs us to do. Christ says, go to the church, but only after you've gone to the brother, you've gone to the sister, you've brought witnesses. You're not getting anywhere. Who is guilty of the greatest sin? If we are talking to others around about sins that others have committed against us, we now are guilty, and we now owe to them a debt. The scripture is clear. You may not hold grudges. You may not think evil of your brother. And you must go to your brother if you have such concerns. Sometimes we think and we pray about it and we realize that it's a relatively minor matter. And beloved, if that's the case, we give the person the benefit of doubt. Maybe they didn't understand what they were doing. Maybe they didn't realize the seriousness of the situation as we did. And if we can forget it truly, then we go forward. If it constantly nags us and it comes up again and it moves us again to ill feelings, then we need to go to the brother. We go to the brother in the right spirit, in love. The concern is not about myself. It's not about my name. It's not about my honor. It's about God and it's about God's glory. We're concerned about the salvation of that individual. That person is walking in unrepentant sin. We want them to understand the seriousness of their sin so that they can know forgiveness before God. And so we go to the brother, we go to the sister. The fact that we're wrong, that's not the main issue. The main problem is that they sinned against Jehovah. And so Jesus says, you go. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go. Tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If it happens ten times in a day, we're going ten times in a day. We're going. And God uses the means of parents and elders and pastors. He uses the means of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, siblings, spouses. 
who are willing to point out those sins in order that they can resolve them. How important it is for a couple in marriage to talk, talk about these issues. Repeatedly in marriage counseling, this becomes an issue. There are issues, but they've been unresolved. Time has not been taken to talk through, to discuss the matters in order that resolution might be accomplished if at all possible. So long as it's not well between myself and the individual, things are not well between God and the individual either. And so that's the grief. That's the sorrow. I'm concerned about my neighbor. I desire their salvation. And therefore, I desire they be right with God. And so I go. And the more I come to know myself, and the more I understand my own situation, the more I realize, ultimately, I'm the greatest debtor. I'm the one who owes the most. These debts that others owe to me, they're insignificant in compared to what I've transgressed and the great debt I owe to God and my neighbor. And that works on us in humility so that we come in the spirit of love, we come in the spirit of humility. And in that spirit then, we seek the repentance of the brother, the sister. Now what's the possibility of doing this? We feel this evidence of thy grace in us. What a tremendous debt, again, we've incurred before God. How we hurt him every single day. And he's always kind. He's always merciful. He's always gracious. He's always loving and forgiving. He seeks the well-being of his children. And so marvelous is the work of God is that he even turns our sin to our advantage. Marvelous. What love. Though there's consequences, he uses those consequences for our spiritual good. We read concerning God in Nahum 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We have a God who forgives us even sins that we might not even be aware of. But God forgives every last one of them. He doesn't remember them. He casts them off into the depths of the sea. He works sorrow for sin. He works repentance. But if we would ever imagine I've repented of every sin that I've ever committed, we deceive ourselves. Pride would begin to settle in. We pray in general, forgive us our sins, forgive us the depravity of our natures, believing that Jesus covered all those sins. He covered every transgression. But we know until we die, there's going to be hidden sins. There's going to be still secret sins in our lives that God in his wondrous mercy and grace forgives us. And our peace, our comfort is every last one of our sins cast off. There's no memory of my sin on God's part. Jeremiah 31 is another marvelous passage. Verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God remembers your sin and my sin no more. God doesn't bring it up. 
He doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't hold grudges. If we do something, God doesn't say, well, I remember what they did back then, so therefore, I'm going to even punish them greater. No, God is dealing with us in love. God is dealing with us in mercy. We sometimes feel that. We sometimes think that. We think, God is treating me now because of those evils that I did. Remember Joseph's brothers. That was their concern. All of a sudden, guilt struck them. And they're like, God is now dealing with us because of what we did to Joseph. No, that's not the case. God forgives us. There's consequences to our sin, but even that God is using for good. God freely, mercifully forgives us. And that forgiveness is on the basis of eternal election. It's unchangeable. It's an objective forgiveness that cleanses us from all our debts. And so that's the picture that Jesus here presents in this parable. The parable of the man who owed this great debt. It was a debt that was in the millions. Some estimate about $15 million in our day. It would have been impossible for this man ever to pay off this debt. And so Jesus here gives this parable. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, verse 23, that would take account of his servants. And when he began to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. So the equivalent of, of about $15 million. There's no way he could pay. And so the Lord now commanded him to be sold, his wife, his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant falls down and worships and says, Lord, Lord, have patience. I'll pay thee all. Now we could say that's a bit of a self-righteous response. There was nothing that this man could do. This man was in a difficult situation. And God sets forth that now as an example. The same is true of you and me. We owe to God a debt we cannot begin to pay. And if we in pride would say, God, God, just give me a little time and I'll pay it back. What self-righteousness? You really think that you can pay back what you owe before God? God is setting forth here the wonder of his grace. It's not of man. It's nothing of self. It's all of grace. God forgives us when there's no possibility that we could ever pay it back. And God hears our cry and he objectively forgives us. He gives us to know also the subjective experience of that forgiveness in time. All a wonder of God's grace alone as God sees us in Christ. By faith then we believe all my sins have been blotted out through the precious work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. He accomplished on Calvary what I could never do. And he did so by a wonder of God's grace by which God had chosen me from eternity and then gave me to Jesus Christ so that my sins objectively then would be forgiven. And now when I confess my sins, I experience the subjective assurance. God gives me to know, look what Jesus did for you. Look what the wonder of the cross is. You're forgiven. You've been cleansed from all unrighteousness. I won't hold those sins against you. God, by Christ, through his word, says, for instance, in passages like Colossians and others, you are forgiven on the basis of my perfect sacrifice. I've accomplished the wonder of that work of grace in your heart. That's the marvelous word that we hear, for instance, in Colossians chapter 2.
God gives us to know the wonder of His mercy and of His grace, giving us to know in whom we have, talking about what Jesus has done, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1 verse 14. We pray then on the confidence of that cross. We pray on the confidence of God's work of grace on our behalf according to eternal election. And God gives us that peace. He gives us to know that favor with Him. He gives us His Spirit. He gives us the knowledge that our sins are forgiven. He works in us that sorrow after God. He gives us to know your debt is forgiven. It's gone. There is therefore now no condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1 to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the wonder of my love, the beautiful doxology of Romans 8 at the conclusion of the chapter. Nothing! Because I have covered all your sins and trespasses. Now in comparison to that, the debts that fellow believers, your spouse, your children, your parents, siblings, classmates owe to you, is nothing. It's insignificant. And that's the point here of the parable. The servant then went out and found one of his servants that owed him a hundred pence. Again, Jesus is making extreme here, but the idea there is about $15. So $15 million versus $15. It's peanuts. It's nothing really. And what does this wicked servant do? The man says, give me time and I'll pay it all. And he's sincere. He could do this. This is something he actually could accomplish. If you just gave him some time, he would be able to meet the death. But we have no mercy. We have no grace shown. Instead, he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Verse 30. That's the harsh response that so often can characterize our lives. We feel the debts that others owe to us are so great that that's all we can see. We can't even see beyond it. But God says, they're nothing compared to the debt that you owe to me. You need to understand and realize the horror of your sin. Be living in the consciousness of the wonder of God's grace. Realize that you are always in debt one toward another. No saint is perfect as long as he lives in the midst of this world. And so the point, beloved, of the parable is very clear. If you experience the forgiveness of God for the sins that you've committed against God, you surely will be one who is merciful. You will forgive those who are your fellow saints. And the only possibility of forgiving is because of what God has done for me and the wonder of God's grace. God doesn't need to forgive you. God's mercy is undeserving. If God would refuse to cancel your debt and would send you forever to hell, he would be just and no one could raise a single word of complaint. But God gives us to know his mercy. And now, to forgive our brother then is not merely an obligation on our part. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a privilege. We who know what mercy feels like, we who know what grace is, we now count it a privilege to be able to show that mercy, to show that grace toward others whom God puts in our life. But beloved, it's even more than that. It's inevitable. It's the inevitable fruit 
of God's work of grace in the heart of his children. God's children have the Holy Spirit at work within them. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? The Spirit will work love, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance in the hearts of his children. That's Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. If you experience God's mercy and you know the wonder of forgiveness, you will show that love and that care toward those whom God puts on your pathway. Now, it may be that God has to work a wonder. It may be that God has to shake up our lives hard because we're being stubborn and because we're being extremely unforgiving. It may be that God must do extreme things in our lives to bring us to show that mercy and to show that kindness and to show our own unworthiness and our own sin. But God will do that. That's the wonder of his love. And that's the marvelous mercy that God works in our hearts. And what will be the fruit of it? You will forgive them as they confess that sin to you. You will do so as those who are humble, acknowledging the fact that this is something that you're willing to do again and again and again. And you acknowledge the fact that it has nothing to do with you. This is God's work of grace in you. Now, beloved, your forgiveness of others is always going to be tainted with sin. We're never going to forgive others perfectly. We're never going to forget perfectly. There's always going to be struggles that we have against our own sinful nature. And what does that remind us? Again, it reminds us that my salvation has nothing to do with my works. If it did, I would be doomed. It reminds us that I can't earn anything by my forgiveness and by my acts toward my brothers and sisters. I am a sinner whose salvation is all of God. And all that's evident in me is the fruit of God's work. But I'm doing it, not for my sake, not for my reputation, for God's sake and for his glory. Beloved, this is necessary. And that's the point now that Jesus is driving home here. It is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. When we fail to forgive our brother, it's because we're not living in the consciousness of our forgiveness. We don't know forgiveness. Now, why is that? Once again, there's two possibilities. Either it's because we're not saved. That's the situation here in Jesus' parable. This is where the parable breaks down. Although we have the master forgiving, it becomes evident he really wasn't forgiven. He didn't really know what mercy was. He's cast to hell. God never casts into hell anybody who truly is forgiven. So that the point of the parable then is to stress this. Someone who is not showing forgiveness toward others gives evidence they're not a child of God. They're not regenerated. And they are deserving then of everlasting damnation in hell. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that you're a child of God, regenerated by God's grace. But the devil has his hold on you for a time. You're not confessing your sin. You're not walking in the spirit of humility. You're blind to your sin for a time. And you're walking in pride. And that pride results in an unwillingness then too to forgive others. But again, beloved, if you've really tasted the wonder of the debt being lifted of your sin, then you will walk in a spirit of repentance and sorrow. And you'll show that in your interactions 
with your brothers and sisters in Christ, in your marriage, with your siblings, with your parents, at school, and in the church of Jesus Christ. When you fail to forgive your brother, your sister, you will not experience God's joy, God's peace. You can hold grudges, you can refuse to forgive, but you will not expect to enjoy the assurance of that forgiveness from God. It's making mockery of God and of his mercy. God says you can't have the joy, you can't have the peace of that forgiveness in this way. If you continue down that path of wickedness, you give evidence in time of the hardness of your heart. You never were forgiven and you'll be cast into that place of torment. So that again, Jesus makes this unmestakably clear in Matthew 6. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. We have here in Matthew 18, verses 34 and 35. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Matthew 5 stresses the same in the context of Jesus here speaking of the importance and the necessity of forgiveness. He says in verses 23 and following, Therefore, bring, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him. Thus at any time the adversary deliver thee the judge, and the judge deliver thee the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Beloved, forgiving one another, we live in the rich blessedness of the communion of saints. We know the love that God has for us from eternity, displayed at Calvary. And together we live in the hope, the joy of that glorious salvation. Those who refuse to forgive their brother but rather are living in hatred and in enmity, don't care about their fellow saints. What does God say about that? You know what God says about that. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? 1 John 4, 20. And in time, that hatred becomes evident. God hardens individuals who are walking in that manner. They forget all about the saints. They isolate themselves from communion. They don't want anything to do with others. They refuse to pay the debt that God commands them to pay. And what happens with those individuals? They don't have friends. Who wants to befriend someone who's always blaming everyone else on all their problems? Someone who's refusing to confess their faults. They become more and more bitter against individuals. And what happens then? Their life is miserable. And they themselves are the source of that misery. You've been there, perhaps. You know others who are there or have been there. What misery, beloved. Soon they leave the church and they claim there's no love in that church. Now, of course, every church has to evaluate that. And there's always room for improvement. But often, the fault is not with the church primarily, but with the individual. Those who harbor that bitterness in their souls, they're not walking in love. They don't know love. And in time, that becomes evident in their life. 
The communion of saints is possible. The communion of saints is enjoyable only in connection with the forgiveness of sins. When we're walking in a spirit of willingness to forgive and when we're forgiving one another. And so, beloved, remember the as again. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, we desire forgiveness. We're sorry and we forgive those who desire that forgiveness and are sorry. We go to them even as God has come to us. And that forgiveness is abundant. There's no end to it. We forgive again and again and again. Beloved, God is testing us. Our Heavenly Father comes to you. He comes to me and He says, this is a serious matter. I've forgiven you. How are you living now with your spouse? How are you living now with your parents? How are you living with your siblings? How are you living within the body of Jesus Christ? How are you living toward others outside? And beloved, we pray. We pray for this grace. Knowing our own sinfulness, knowing the hardness of our hearts. Jesus says, pray. Pray this prayer regularly. And do so from the heart. And do so in the consciousness of the wonder of the love of God for you and the debt that you owe toward others. So that we come back to the question, beloved, with which we began the sermon. Is there anyone that you have not forgiven? Is there anyone that you're living with regard to grudges toward or anger or hatred toward? Go to them. Seek their repentance. Forgive them. And forgive them, not in a spirit of self-pity. Forgive them from the heart, in the consciousness of God's great and gracious forgiveness of your sins. And beloved, the joy of forgiveness will be sweet. And God gives us a peace unlike any other peace that we could ever have. As we find ourselves and confess ourselves to be sinners saved by grace. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us and strengthen us that the wonder of thy grace might be evident in our lives and that we might be those who are kind, who are merciful, those who seek out, those who sin against us and those who are willing and ready to forgive, those who seek to live and to walk in a manner that reflects the wonder of the love with which we've been loved. Lord, forgive us. We incur so many debts against thee and against one another. We thank thee for thy mercy that thou hast forgiven us all our sins and trespasses and thou wilt bring, unto us, bring us into the joy and the wonder of the fullness of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.